Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. And good morning, listeners. This morning, welcome to the GeoMob podcast. I'm joined by my good friend, Jo Cook. In her brief bio, Jo says that she was born in Kent, but now definitely a northerner, studied maths at Durham before falling hard for archaeology, after a visit to Housestead's Fort, studied underwater archaeology at St. Andrews, and then worked as a land archaeologist in Carlisle. She taught herself databases by building one for the excavation, then slowly got into GIS and ICT management, discovered open source when it was very much all command line stuff and compiling from source code, and that led to PhosphorG, OSGO, and OSGO UK. And then she started work for Aston in 2011, and she's been there since. Good morning, Joe. Welcome to the GeoMob podcast. Morning, and thanks very much for inviting me to uh, come and chat. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this interview. I look forward to every interview, but particularly I've been looking forward to this interview because my personal history is quite entwined with your history around open source. So we'll get to that in a bit. A disclaimer from both of us listeners, we both work for Aston Technology. We both think they're a great company. And we just want you to know that we both work at the same place. So Joe, it's been a while since we've actually seen each other. I think it was Christmas the last time that we got together. So what's it been like working remotely for you? Well, to be honest, because Aston's very much a a distributed company geographically, you know, we we do have an office in in Epsom in Surrey, but you know, we all the the majority of us work have always worked remotely. It's it's not it's not been that huge a a change for me. I feel very privileged and lucky that, that lockdown has had very little serious impact on the lives of myself and my family. And uh, but yeah, you know we're 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 all set up for for working remotely. My husband also works remotely, and we've both worked in the same room now for a good uh, decade or so. You know, and I hope and, you come and, out occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> we do, we do let ourselves out occasionally, and and having a couple of dogs who need walking is is very good for that. So uh, I think I think actually that one thing that I found about lockdown is that because a lot of the the kind of the excuses for for being distracted and and sort of um doing doing other things have have gone and and so we've settled down into a very nice routine i think and you know getting on with what's important really yeah i i think um lots of people are finding that somebody told me an interesting thing that they predicted that people's aspirations for where they would live would change because once remote working becomes the norm, you can then choose to live in beautiful places like you do, where you've got magnificent countryside all around you. You don't have to be so focused on the commute. So uh, those northern those northern beauty spots are going to come up on the list of desirable places for lots of people to live, I suspect. Well, let's hope they don't get too popular. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, Joe, apart from the quick biography, how did you get into Geo and when did you discover your passion for open source? Or was it the other way around? You discovered a passion for open source first. I, I really started with, with the Geo side of things. Going back to when I studied maths at Durham, I actually 
pretty much avoided computers altogether because at the time, and this is in the you know the the early to mid nineties, using a computer was particularly in the sciences was very much about emulating things you could do on paper, you know, but coming up with a result that wasn't quite as accurate. And I, I never really saw a, a good reason why I should actually use them. And then when I started working as a field archaeologist on a on a fantastic excavation in the centre of Carlisle on a on a big Roman fort, a company came in to try and sell us their database. And I, I simply asked my boss if I could actually go and see this presentation. I was I was interested. And to cut the long story short, I, I realized that not only would it be possible to build a database that did a better job than the one that they were trying to sell us, but that all the things we were doing in our excavation were really just about following a set of, of logical rules. And, 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 you know, basically, if you find something, it's, it's got to be in, in one layer, and that layer might be earlier than a different layer or later than a, another layer, but that particular find, it can't be in more than one layer at any one time. And, and basically, it's just a set of rules. It's a set of logical rules. And so it surprises me now, but I basically said to my boss, I've got no experience in building databases, but I'd like to build one. So we bought a copy of, at the time, the Microsoft Office 2000 Developer Edition. And I taught myself how to build databases in, in Microsoft Access. And from that, uh, that became my job within the archaeology unit at the time. When I started working for Oxford Archaeology, I was given the opportunity to start looking at, at the, the spatial distribution of finds. And obviously, that leads to needing a GIS. But there's not a lot of money in archaeology. So basically, it was either spend more money than we could afford on the commercial offerings at the time, or start looking at open source. And I suppose I came to open source from the free aspect of it, but very quickly began to see the benefits of the open source brings, which have become effectively the, the kind of guiding tenet of my of my career ever since, really. You know, the idea of of having control over your 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 data and your software, you know, not being at the mercy of people changing file formats, it, particularly in archaeology, that's a it's a it's a huge problem. You know, you create an archive and you you want people to be able to use that archive in the future. And if it's all in obsolete file formats that you can't get the software for anymore, then you might just as well have have burnt that data it's it's useless yeah. so yeah and, and from that i i slowly became a complete computer geek and, and yeah that that's, that's that's it yeah I, I was just musing as you were telling me that story that i wonder how many people got their first introduction to databases using Microsoft Access. I know I did, you know, I mean, I, I had a copy of Office, it had a copy of Access, it sat unopened for ages, and then I opened it and started fiddling with it and learned about tables and relate, you know, relationships between tables and things like that. And so the basic database concepts, I wonder how many people actually learned them from Microsoft Access. A bit ironic, uh, really. I would say that the majority of people did. Um, my copy of Microsoft Access for Dummies, which I no longer have, was possibly the most well-thumbed of my computer, uh, sort of computer books for, for a long, long time. Yeah. And so you left Ox Oxford Archaeology and you went to work for Aston. Indeed, yeah. But I, I think that I, I owe a huge amount to Oxford Archaeology, who who basically gave me a bit of a free reign to 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 get into the whole open source world, really, and you know, let me attend 
Phosphagy 2006 in Switzerland, which was really the the kind of the big kind of kickoff for me with being involved in that in that whole world. And it was also the the point at which I met the OSGO president at the time, which was uh, Tyler Mitchell, who who was who was trying to get people involved in the in the local chapters. And and I have to say, I mean, had I not been through that journey, I I wouldn't have then been in a position to um, well apply for the for the job at Aston when it came up. So it's all been quite serendipitous, really. Mm. And I can remember, which is sort of connecting back to when we first met, and that was at an AGI conference, which was very not open source, very yes. propriety. I think we were in Stratford upon Avon, if I remember correctly, and. Yep. You were there probably as a delegate. I remember you, and I was, I don't know whether I was chairing that conference or on the organizing committee, but you came up to me and you pitched OSGO to me and suggested that somehow AGI should be supporting and sponsoring OSGO. And I can't remember exactly what the pitch was, but I know that I was completely baffled, Joe. I didn't understand it. But I remembered, and that was the point, you know, that actually the those early approaches that people make, you know, and they they plant a seed, and it was I don't know five years later or or more that um, I remember when I was at MapInfo saying that there were two threats to MapInfo's business, and they were open data and open source, and people at senior level in MapInfo looked at me like I was mad. And a few years later, we can look back and see how their business was severely impacted by both of those forces. So you met Tyler back in 2006, and he inspired you to go a bit further. How did, um, well, before we talk about OSGO in the UK, talk about OSGO, the foundation where Tyler was president at that time. Okay. So for those those people that don't really know, OSGO Foundation is is a not for profit, basically with the mission to to kind of foster open source geospatial technology adoption across the world, and to really foster the idea of communities around open source. It's it's also an independent legal entity, which means that it can that that people can contribute code and funding and be pretty secure that their contributions will be maintained sort of for the public benefit. At the time when I first sort of got involved with it, it was a very, very new organization and still trying to figure out what it wanted to, to be when it grew up. It was heavily supported by the likes of Autodesk at the time, which is sort of quite surprising really. But um yeah, it was it was very early days and it was it was very much sort of settling down as an organization. I was looking at some pictures from the Swiss conference in 2006, and it was strange to see such a focus on some of the very early projects and to see some projects that are no longer really around. Yeah, the, the, just different people were involved. But one thing they were very keen to do at the time was to get people involved at a more local level, so in, in different countries. And Tyler in particular was could see that there was a real case for having a, a chapter in, in the UK. And I, I think because I was there and I was from the UK, you managed to persuade me that it was a good idea. And there weren't many then. I mean, it was, a, 
Yeah, you were. I won't say you were a lone voice because I'm sure you weren't. But there weren't many people advocating for open source back in the mid 2000s. No, there weren't. I mean, ironically, the the uh, the the other the other voice was was another Joe. It was it was Joe Walsh, who of course at the time was was better known for the Google Maps hack book and for a while and still now occasionally people get myself and and Joe confused. But um, yeah, it was it was interesting. And I mean. From a UK perspective, yes, it was. It was there weren't that many people advocating open source. I'm sure there were a lot of people using it, but not really trying to persuade others to use it as well. And then our other big focus back at the time, this being really before the likes of OpenStreetMap and certainly before Ordnance Survey opened up their data, was was you know our focus was also about actually giving people some data to use. Because I, I mean, I remember back at the archaeology unit, it was all very well and good having a GIS package that you could use to to, to look at your site but actually getting mapping to use was was a seriously expensive business for a long time how can i put this the uh, the, the base mapping sources were perhaps not the most legal of um <laughs> no, data sets but and i think in fact the open source community and the open data community have a symbiotic relationship and neither would have flourished to the extent that they have done by 2020 without the other you know, no, no, quite agree. You know, we need, you know, the open source geo people need open data. It's no good just making the tools available to people if they haven't got data to work with. And most of the open data is built using tools and platforms which are open source themselves. And you know, so the two of us are interdependent. And actually, when it was great in 2018, when we were at, in, at Phosphagy and Dar es Salaam, because that was also the state of the map conference. So you had the two communities actually at a conference, a big conference together for the first time, which I seem to recall was something we tried in 2013 for Phosphor G in Nottingham, but couldn't manage to pull off for some reason. Didn't quite manage it, yeah. No, but I think that's a great thing. And yeah, I hope we see more of that. So in addition to being involved in the OSGO Foundation and starting the UK chapter, you're also a contributor on your own of code, aren't you? This woman who started with an access database and an itch to scratch is now the maintainer of an open source project. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, which uh, I mean, so my my little project, Portable GIS, is again something that I've actually been been doing in the background now for well, maybe so it was Phosphagy in Victoria, which was 2008. So yeah, it's been it's been going for a while, and again, it was really about making it easier to use the the tools. As I as as I said, in when I was originally involved in open source, it was very much about the command line and compiling your own your own code. My my first ever open source project that I knew in any great detail was MapGuide Open Source, which was Autodesk's open source mapping platform back in the day. And Mm. to get that working on Windows was nigh on impossible. And to get it working on anything other than the one version of Linux that people were using was was fairly tough. And I was quite heavily involved in actually getting it, getting a a compilable version. So I had a very, a, a massive introduction into the likes of configure and make and make install um very very early on in my in my GIS career but i wanted to make i, w- I wanted to make it possible for for other people that perhaps weren't as stubborn as i was to to use these these packages so i, I figured out that since most of them when they were working on windows were actually driven by by batch files 
that it would be possible to to effectively package them up and into a very portable thing. And it continues to surprise me that a lot of people still find it an incredibly useful tool. I guess I assumed that as it became easier to open to to, to use these tools anyway, you know, they have all inv- evolved and improved. That maybe people wouldn't really need a, a portable version, but it, it does still get used. And it, occasionally, I still get tweets from far off places saying, "Yay, portable GIS may, means that we can run QGIS and PostGIS and things on these extremely old computers." Or so I get is- emails from people at local council saying. Yay! I can I can actually run you know I, I I can run these packages without having to go through the council security systems, which of course I should terribly disapprove of completely. But you know. So what's in portable GIS? Basically, the the main the main tools are PostgreSQL and PostGIS, QGIS. There's a whole series of command line tools. What else is involved? Open layers. Effectively, it's the the key projects to give you an open source mapping stack from from start to finish back in running the day running on I've, windows run, running on windows yeah and, and and entirely portable so it's also got apache and things like that so you can yeah. run a run a web server bit of, bit you of can data put the whole thing on a memory stick the whole thing lives lives on a memory stick and you can literally take it out and plug it into a different windows computer and have your database you know still there and your mapping still there I, I had to build a, a control panel for it so that people don't have to go in and actually run batch files and do command line stuff to get things to work. So yeah, and I and I guess the other thing that I learned from the whole experience was was really about proper open source licensing, you know, having to make a choice about what sort of what sort of license I wanted to give it, and you know running a project in a proper repository on actually it's on GitLab, but you know GitHub is obviously the more the more common place for these things to live, and uh, it ticks along in the background. It's not something that I I have to do a lot with very often. I like to try and keep up with. QGIS long-term release versions if I can. And do you get contributions from other people, or is it pretty much a solo project? Pretty much a solo project. Until very recently, I didn't didn't really have the mechanism for people to help contribute. But I had a big project a, a couple of years ago where I documented the actual build process and put all the files, say, into GitLab to make it easier to people for people to contribute. But no, I, I get the occasional issue submitted, but I don't really get any contributions Largely to, it's to you. making it work. It is. Largely it's you. Yeah, it is, it is just me. And it was elevated to being an OSGO community project about 18 months, two years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, which again, it, for those that don't know, OSGO community projects are sort of the first step towards a fully full OSGO sort of project. What it means is that you've you've been through the licensing and you've made sure that, that that's all correct, that you have a way for people to contribute if they want. You have the source code available. As I say, it's the first step towards graduation as a full OSGO supported project. And it's a useful thing to do for any provider of open source code, I think, because it does make you think about your code and sort of apply a bit of due diligence to think about the intellectual property. And, um, you know, then you get a little bit of a boost from having it sort of publicized on the OSGO website. And um, I, I don't think I will try and get Portable GIS incubated as a full 
OSGO project. I don't think there's any real need for that. But there are other cases where it's a really good a good thing to do, and then yeah. projects do become full full uh, yeah. OSGO projects. And I'd just add, and this is as someone who doesn't have a Windows machine, so my experience of portable GIS is limited from looking at it on other people's machines. That for anybody who wants to just dip their toes into using open source geo technology, you know, the ability to just plug a USB stick in and have a copy of QGIS, connect it to a PostGIS database, and actually start loading a bit of data and playing around with it in a matter of minutes is a fantastic way to get started. Um, much simpler than, I mean, I know you can download a, a Postgres and install it yourself, and then you can load the PostGIS plugin and configure that and get that running. But you, you're already getting quite geeky to do all of that, whereas with Portable GIS, you can literally get started within five or ten minutes. It's it's a great little project, Joe, and uh, I can understand why lots of people in different organizations appreciate the work that you do maintaining it. So you're now, your new passion, apart from metadata, and we're not going to talk about metadata this morning, but that could be a conversation for another day because you and I are two people who can wax lyrical about metadata. Uh, but your other passion now is documentation. What have you been doing with around documentation recently? Well, yeah, so documentation is is a really, it, it's a lot more interesting than people think. And the reason that I started getting very interested in it, I mean, there's the obvious, there's the obvious thing that if you are not particularly good at coding, but you want to be involved in an open source project, then documentation. You're talking to me here. <laughs> <laughs> documentation is an, is an easy way in. And it's a great thing to do if you if you see some getting started instructions and you realize that they actually miss a step. Perhaps they were written by somebody that, that knows the software very, very well and didn't think about that one step that a beginner might need to know about. But you come in as a beginner and you see that and you think, oh, I could improve that documentation and make it easier for the next beginner. That is a fantastic thing to do. So I started, I guess my interest in, in documentation started from that perspective of it being a way that I could contribute to projects without really understanding that much about, say, Java or, or C++. But more recently, in the last sort of 18 months or two years, there's been quite a lot going on around the way that we write documentation or really the, the way that we phrase things. And that might be as simple as not using terms like easily or just. Because if you say to somebody, just do this, then you're implying that it's very straightforward to do. And if they can't do it, then they're actually a bit simple and a bit, you know. <laughs> and and easily is another another example of that. You can easily install this software using Node. Well, that simple sentence needs to be quite seriously unpacked before any beginner can actually use it. And so I, I got quite interested in using more inclusive language in documentation and also trying not to be dismissive. I, I find it incredibly frustrating when expert users of software or maybe the maintainers of the software are dismissive when they're talking to people about how to do things. 
So I got interested in that. And then I also I got involved in Google Season of Docs, not this year, but last year, helping to improve documentation for GeoNetwork. So Google Season of Docs is a fantastic project because effectively they pay for professional documentation writers to help with projects. So you apply as a project and you say, you know, we, we would like help writing documentation for, you know, for our, our software and Google decide which projects they're going to support. And they provide you with one or in some cases, even two technical writers. And it's fairly intent over a six month period, but you get such valuable help from them and such fantastic advice on how to write good documentation different types of documentation and so so that's 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 been very interesting to me and from that the the good docs project was formed ah, um, i'm glad you mentioned that yeah and, and and i have to say the good docs project is is amazing it, it's about providing baseline good documentation for projects so you can go along as a project and effectively take the documentation that the Good Docs project provides and use it as the basis for your own project. And what you will have is a very, very comprehensive set of docs with lots and lots of guidance on the right phrasing to use, as I said, sort of terms that are inclusive rather than, than things that might put people off. So I was I was quite heavily involved in in the Good Docs project to to start with. Due to my my workload, I've been less involved now. And uh, I confess that it's it's kind of outgrown me a little bit. I I'm a yeah, my, my workload has been such that I haven't been able to to contribute or, or follow follow what's been going on. But it's they've got a massively passionate community there. And yeah, it's it's a fantastic project. And just documentation in general, as I say, it, it's, it's so important. It's terribly underrated in a lot of projects. And but it's an it's the thing that people that people it's the way into your project. So if you want new people to start work, to, to use your project and to, to maybe you'd, you'd actually secretly like some more people to help you run the project. Pro- and yeah, yeah and, and the, the way into that is via the documentation. And if people are being put off because they don't understand how to install your software or to how to get going with it, then that's such a shame and it's so easy to actually fix. So, yeah. And it also speaks to that that dichotomy between writing software because you want that software to do a job and writing software for other people. You know, so a lot of developers are building software because they're going to use it. And the other users, the people who aren't involved at the core of the project are almost secondary. And the documentation is what levels out the playing field and enables everybody to make use of the software. I think it's a great project. And what's interesting to me, Joe, is, and I'm sure you knew this, that Cameron Shorter, who was very active in OSGO in Australia and chaired a, a phosphagy down there a number of years ago. He's now working for Google on documentation and is sort of very active in shaping the Good Docs project and designing the yeah. sponsorship yeah. programs and all sorts of things for the Good Docs yeah. program. Yeah. Cam- Cameron so has been person. the, uh, yeah. He's he's been the key the key driver. He's the really the the driving force behind the Good Docs project and behind 
OSGO's involvement in Google Season of Docs originally. And um, yeah. yeah, he he was the one that that basically managed to persuade me to get involved in Google Season of Docs and then in in the Good Docs project. So and yeah. he's now actually full time focused on documentation on documentation, uh, which is yeah. f- fantastic. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's a sort of a message to lots of people who want a career in technology but don't see themselves as coders, that there is a lot more to do than just writing code. Absolutely. And good technical writers are not just they're not just secretaries you know the technical writing is a is a very very skilled it's a very skilled role but but it is one that is relatively easy to get into because you can start with baby steps you can start by say just clarifying a sentence in a readme file and you know just by doing that one thing you will probably make somebody else's life a lot easier because they won't get stuck on something and that to me is just such a fantastic thing you've just made me think that that's maybe something i should go away and look at because i I may not be able to write code but i can write sentences well there you go yeah how important is punctuation (laughs) no comment For the people listening to this podcast, Joe and I have an almost obsessive interest in grammar and punctuation, which causes much amusement amongst our colleagues and probably will be evident in your documentation, Joe, I'm sure. So when you're not wrestling with metadata's portals for Aston or writing documentation or maintaining portable GIS, what do you do outside of GEO? I suppose my main love at the moment has to be bouldering. So for those that are not quite sure what that is, that's climbing up small rocks, but without any ropes. It's to me, it is is absolutely the the perfect thing. It's rock climbing is all about problem solving. I mean, there's the obvious things of of how not to fall off, but you know how to get from one bit of rock to another is all about physics. And I was I was trying to explain to my husband yesterday about the friction involved in in climbing up gritstone. But basically, it's it's problem solving. But also, when you face a rock, you can't bring with it all of your work problems. You've got to just focus on being in the moment and and figuring out where you know how how to move and and where to put your feet and where to put your hands and where your center of gravity needs to be. So I find it incredibly useful to to stop me obsessing about work if if i didn't have bouldering i i would find it difficult to switch off sometimes from from work and i love my work i love my work with a passion but i do need to switch off from it and bouldering gives me that method and at the moment in lockdown where the climbing walls are all closed i'm being forced outside of my comfort zone quite dramatically and i'm i'm doing a lot of climbing on on actual rocks and i live in such an amazing part of the country i'm just south of the lake district and on the borders of the forest of boland and i can be in beautiful countryside in approximately 10 minutes drive from my house i can be sitting there looking out across Morecambe bay with just the skylarks for company and clambering up and down some lovely little rocks and it is is just amazing and um, i'm just a bit worried when well. you've said little a couple of times how big is little well generally i'd say three or four meters oh right so not not really, not massive, but far not enough massive. that if you, fall, if you fall, you hurt yourself, you don't kill yourself. Yeah, I mean, and we do have bouldering mats. So, so yes, it's, it's. I mean, you, you can boulder to, 
much greater heights, if you like, but I'm not that kind of person. It's it's not really right. about the risk aspect as, as far as I'm concerned. It's got to be quite safe. But um, but but yes. And then so at the moment, because I can't go to the climbing wall, I'm I'm discovering all these little outdoor venues very close to me and just having a fantastic time. And it, it keeps me very fit. But uh, but yes, it just it, it it's just such a such a contrast. And it's, it's just very mindful. I think that's the best way of describing it. It's it's a very mindful thing to do. So, yeah. Great, and I, I'm jealous. I, I don't think we've got any boulders in Muswell Hill. No, no. We've got shishi coffee and um, parks, but not boulders. So my last question for you, Joe, as we wrap this up, I know you've spoken a couple of times at Geomob, and I think you've attended a couple others as, as just an attendee. Is there a favorite moment, something that you remember particularly from a Geomob that you share with our listeners so yeah I've, I've been to, I've presented at a couple of them and I was I was just thinking about it earlier it, it has been a while actually and uh, so I th- the things that spring to mind about Geomob for me well the first is is probably that I remember being very very excited about just some of the other projects that that were there it's uh, I think people that that present at Geomob are, are generally really really passionate about what they do and and that that definitely shows through but I think, and my memory might be a little bit hazy about this, but it might have been a presentation that Gary Gale gave about his vaguely inappropriate place names project. Oh, right. Um, yeah, um, he did. Which, which was actually my first ever GitHub commit was to Gary's inappropriate place names project. So that's that. I think that's probably the, the thing that, um, that I remember most about about Geomob was uh, that because once I understood how to commit things to to, to GitHub and as Stephen will know, yeah. making your first commit is is quite a <laughs> it's quite a daunting thing to do. It is particularly when pushes and pulls seem to be going in the opposite direction to what you might think they were doing. Yes, yeah, the 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 language is quite is quite alien in a way. But yes, that that first commit to the vaguely inappropriate place names project got me got me going and in a position where I could then contribute as I say documentation or the occasional code fix to to other projects so yeah big thanks to Gary for that one and actually now you say that Joe I realize that um, you you taught you taught a workshop at a phosphor G UK a few years back on getting started making your first commit I think you called it with github yeah. and I did that workshop and, and Whilst at the time I thought I'll never use this, I don't know why I'm doing this. Of course, since then it's meant that I've been able to help maintain the OSGO UK website and the Phosphor G UK website, all using GitHub. So Gary inspiring you to make your first commit, then you inspired me to make my first commit, and um, and so it goes on, you know. And um, that's probably a good summary of what happens with people getting involved with open source. It is, yeah, yeah. I- Definitely. It's about doing that one thing that you can do to then make it easier for other people to do it in future. And um, that's, a good that's thing defi- to do. It's definitely a function of, of, of open source that you don't really see elsewhere, I think. Yeah. And I think that's a good point for us to finish, Joe. So if people want to get in touch with you to find out about portable GIS or to talk to you about good docs, how can they get in touch with you? I think probably Twitter's the best place. Find find me at on Twitter at archaeogeek. Is is probably the still the best place to find me. So. Okay, and I'll put that. I'll put your Twitter handle and a link to the Portable GIS project and the Good Docs project in 
the show notes. Joe, it's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. Thanks very much for your time. And let's get together again and let's infuse the GeoMob podcast listeners with our passion for metadata. Oh, definitely, definitely. Okay, that's a date. Take care, Joe. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.